Well, good morning. You are right at the kind of the precipitous of the new year. And as we look at 2020, um, many of us will probably remember Y2K. Uh, how many of you remember being here when Y2K was a big deal? Okay, and we, we woke up the next morning and wondered if the banks were going to be functioning, if work was going to be there, which that was maybe in limbo as far as your anxiousness about that. But realize 20 years later, and time just passes so quickly, some of the things that we, we uh, would recognize as we sang the song that didn't come up right away, we believe, is there are certain things that we believe that are very different than maybe people who you work with. Maybe people who look at Y2K as, is the world going to end? Is, is this going to happen? And we already know the answer to that, don't we? If it ends, it's going to end in what favor? In our favor. God is goddess. God has us and has a future for us, no matter what happens to this world. And the question I have up here is, how do you know? And the question is a good one. How do you know you matter? Now, I think a lot of times, maybe some people will, maybe some of the underlying reasons why they get married is, is they want to feel that sense of belonging and a sense of maybe kind of comes from your family as well. But how do you know that you matter is one of the essential things that, uh, that we recognize as being kind of true to every person and that pursuit of, you know, what is this all about and how does this work is a, is a question we need to kind of wrestle with a little bit. Now, if I asked you, is there a point to life, you would tell me, yes, there is a point to life, isn't there? Would it be the same for everyone? Not necessarily. The details may change, but there is an overarching theme that would be pretty similar as we look at that. And if you were to ask that question to, to people who maybe have never been exposed to Christ or Christianity, they might struggle with that question a little bit more than you. They might ask some different questions that would kind of follow up with that. And then this question here, does God exist? So at the time that the Bible was written, and if you look back at this, uh, even Genesis 1, you, re you recognize right away, sometimes we get the, the wrong perspective on things, but does God exist? The very first verse in, in Genesis um, really tells us what was going on at the time and kind of tells us what even maybe goes on even today. At the time that Genesis was, writ was written and Moses was writing it, most people held the view, most people were polytheistic. They believed that there were many gods. There was a God who, who controlled your, your garage door opener. There was a God who was in control of the rain. There was a God in, who was in control of, control of maybe earthquakes. There were gods for every little thing. And it wasn't so much of an issue that, it, that if you had your set of gods and, and I had my set of gods, we had all these different gods. And usually people in that time really didn't actually convert to another religion. They would just move to a new area, pick up a few, new of, the, a, a few of the new gods from that area and incorporate them into their own system of God worship. And so a family might have an altar and they'd have gods for different things. Kind of like making your own Sunday. You come along, you get some chocolate, some strawberry. If you need this, you put that on there too and sprinkles on the end of it. And you realize, wow, that's, that's what it was. But in the beginning, it wasn't gods. It was what? God. Singular, very, very significant. Because 
all of a sudden, this polytheistic world had to deal with the fact that what was true about these Jewish people were they believed in one true God who was the creator of the heavens and the earth and who wrote through his prophets and through his people about him and the fact that he had a, not only a purpose for every single person, but there was an overarching meta-narrative story that I would just call our upper story because it's a common language that we've talked about before. Each of us has a lower story, and it might be for 70 years or 50 years or however long you live, but there's an upper story, and that, that story is God's story. God's story, not only to have a relationship with us, but to redeem a people who have fallen away from him, who have sinned in his pursuit of them. And this story is all about his pursuit of us, this one God, one true God. The Bible is so different. You could stack a bunch of religious texts up beside the Bible, and you just realize there is something so different about the Bible that none of the other religions even compare. And if you've been raised in, in a Christian home, you may not have that contrast to even recognize how different it really is. It's a book that is completely, completely set apart from the other books. To answer the questions, am I significant? What is my purpose? Is there really a God? You might look at some of these sources. I wouldn't suggest that, but you, you might look at the tabloids or People magazine. You might interview an expert. You might go to your guidance counselor for a little guiding, or you might ask your iPhone, what is, what is, does God exist? Has anyone tried that before? Does God exist? Yeah, what, is it, what does it say? Okay, five different answers. You have to choose the one that's right. And the, and the truth is, is this. To answer these questions, we have a book that is so unique and is so, so special that it not only answers those questions, but helps us to understand God's pursuit of us and his whole purpose for having that book. And so as we look at this supernatural book, you realize that I was in the era where we grew up in schools and we had one computer in the whole school. It was an Apple IIe, and I think it had like, it had zero memory compared to today, like your, your phone is squish it. And so, you know, you take one of those computers today, an Apple IIe or Commodore 64, and then a 128 after that, and you realize that just within a few years, they were just doorstops. That's all they were good for, is just to keep the door from slamming shut. And you just realize that things are so different today. And yet, even though we, we're a little smarter, there is something that has never changed for hundreds and hundreds of years. God's truth is as relevant today as it will be tomorrow and thousands of years from now. This book will never be antiquated. You're never going to see the Bible being put on the back of the shelf saying this book no longer is relevant to our living. It is relevant to the answers of the questions that no other books can answer. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is God-breathed, and it's his very word to us. It's his love letter to us, and it, and it communicates much thing, many things. It's not a science book, and I think that's one of the people, one, one thing that we kind of get caught up in. Don't argue that the Bible is a science book. It was never intended to be a science book. That's not its, its intent. And in Genesis, it wasn't so much how it happened, but that God did it. That there was a creation, and th this creation wasn't just by happenstance. God actually created it. And so he gives us some detail, but it was never meant to be that sort of a letter. He show shows us how to, 
to have truth, that there's an absolute truth. And if there was one thing that today is, and it's been in the past as well, but today you just see postmodernism, my truth is my truth, your truth is your truth. Boy, that is, that's not what God says. There is a truth, and that truth will not change because God has control of this whole universe, and he has the end in mind, and from the beginning, he has given us his instruction book. And it gives us purpose because it tells us how we fit into this upper story. How does your life play into God's big story? Now, if you don't believe that there is a story, then your life is just good for a lot of maybe some laughs and jokes and some good food and some fun times, and then you just perish. But if your life actually is a part of a bigger story, then that becomes its significance. Your life and my life has significance. And then the question is this, how can you trust your Bible? Now, if you're honest with yourself, if you're the typical person who grew up maybe, you know, growing up in a family and, and you're, maybe your family told you this Bible is true and it's absolutely true and there's, there's no falseness in there. And at some point in time, maybe later on in your life, as you got a little bit older, you're like, I don't know if that's necessarily true because as you get a little older, you get a little bit more skeptical about what your parents tell you, of course. And so no longer is it your parents told you, but you kind of ask yourself those questions. And if you've gone through that, that's probably pretty natural in some ways. The reality is this, is that this Bible has, tested, has been tested and tested and tested. And it is a book that has held up underneath, underneath the most scrutiny than any other book could over a long period of time. And the, and the result of that is that it still stands true. And as we see today, just some of those things that are, that are kind of evidence of that, just a reality of where your Bible is. Now, I would also say this in the beginning. If someone wants to argue about something in the Bible, and you can tell that they just want to argue, what are you going to do? I would suggest you graciously tell them what you know about the Bible, some of its uniquenesses, and then I would tell them this, how it changed your life. They can't argue about that. It's the reality of your, your interaction with God's word, and, and you're not going to change their viewpoints on things. Now, if they come to you and they really, truly want to know, like I would have been at age 19 through 25 when I was really kind of sifting through some of these things, you can be their greatest help. You can help them be led through a process by which they have a confidence built up in the fact that God's word is what it actually says absolute truth. And that is a very helpful. And there are people who led me through that process too, to a certain point. But I want to say also this, you're never going to figure out the whole book. You're never going to get to the point where you've got all of those questions answered. Like, yeah, I'm 100% certain that every little story in the Bible has absolutely been bolted down. I don't think that's true. I think at some certain point in time, you have to go, Enough of them have been answered that I can trust that God is going to reveal the answer in the future to the things that I may not be able to understand. And that's what faith is all about. Not being able to see things, but also being able to recognize that God is in control. So you're not going to just figure it out. If you wait for yourself to figure out all those things in the Bible before you come to God, boy, that is, that's going to leave you in a place where you you won't come to God because you won't answer necessarily all of those things. I think all the legitimate questions that people have have been answered before, but there's always that little thing. What about this that hasn't been discovered yet or God has not revealed 
and yet he allows us to exercise faith. 1 Peter 3.15, and, and this is why I preface this, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. And the, so what this is saying is, is we do need to be prepared to answer questions for people, to guide them through that process by where they were searching, they can find truth. And to be able to defend our faith in the sense of saying some real, very intellectually true things to people who are genuinely seeking. Not arguing, but seeking. And that's what Peter's heart speaks there, is that with gentleness, we have to respond to people to say, you know, I used to think that about the Bible too, but have you actually read it? Because it's changed my life. And this is why. So you go on to explain how it's changed your life and, and those truths that are in the Bible that are so, so precious to each one of us. Their origin of the Bible. Most of us think, we look underneath our chair, we pull out this thing that's blue in this church or wherever you brought your Bible in, and you realize that it's been all put together nice and there's numbers in there and it's in order and we have this sense in which this is how the Bible always was. One of the neat things about God's word in this book was it wasn't just slammed down in front of us and said, this is what God says and this is what you're going to do. It's more like some other religious traditions of how their book came to be. It came to be in one instant. It came to be in one revelation that someone had and wrote it down on some gold tablets or something crazy like that. And then you realize this book was written over a period of 1,500 to 1,600 years. And it was written by 40 different authors, three different continents, three different languages. And you realize none of them could corroborate with one another to say, oh yeah, I wrote about this. Is it that check with you? Does that check with you? Now, if I, if I took three of you and, had, and three of us got together and we were to, to ask each other to write a narrative of what happened in church, do you think that those narratives would be similar may be similar, but would they be exactly the same? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And then you take the fact that they're from these 40 different authors. There are doctors and there are farmers. There's politicians. There are soldiers. They come from various backgrounds, all different backgrounds, from different cultures and from different times. And they write about things and everything fits together. Paul was a tent maker. And one of the things he made clear was this, you need to cut it straight or it won't fit together. This fits together like a glove and you're just like, wow, how did he know that? And how did this one fit together? And how did that one fit together? And yet it's unique and it has its own flavor. You read the gospels and you realize, wow, there's some similarities and then there are some differences. But what an amazing, amazing book that had this miraculous origin, so different Luke writes this, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, who from the very first, first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent, excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. When Paul wrote this letter, much like many of the other letters, he didn't actually know that he was writing the Bible. There wasn't like this, they didn't send Luke a letter and say, hey, we're writing this really cool book, and you get to be picked as one of the authors for this book. 
He was writing to Theophilus to confirm the beliefs that Theophilus already was, has been told. But he sat down to write an orderly account because so many things had happened. And you realize this miraculous book was written by people who didn't even know they were writing the book. Most of them didn't even know that. Yes, they were, they were blown along by the Holy Spirit, but they really didn't understand that this would be so significant, that we would be reading. Luke probably had no idea that we would be reading his, his letter a couple thousand years later. It's amazing to see how God used these people, ordinary people, to do his thing. 2 Peter 1.20 says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so we have lots of these different authors, but there's one central author who is the Holy Spirit as he inspired each of these authors to speak to us. And again, from three different continents, three different languages, how could this possibly even fit together? And yet it does. And it has a divine theme. You can see Christ really from the beginning all the way through the whole thing. You see in Genesis, he's the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. Leviticus, he's the high priest. And as you go on, you just see these pictures of Christos. You see pictures of who, who is to come. Isaiah 53, I was, I was just listening to uh, something the other day. And uh, this pastor was sharing that he knew a Jewish lady who, who had grown up in a Jewish church and, and had been experienced that whole uprising up, uh, up in that church where she would learn the scriptures. And she, she said that when they studied Isaiah, they would study Isaiah 52 and they would j- jump to Isaiah 54. They would never study Isaiah 53. And that was profound to me to realize, wow. Because if you read Isaiah 53, you just see Christ so clearly as the sacrificial lamb, as the one who is to come, who is, and at 5311, that he would have life ever after. And you go, wow, you see Jesus from the beginning to the very end. Amazing, amazing book that has one theme. The preservation of the Bible Bob Ingersoll, who's a well-known atheist of last century in the 1800s, he died actually in 1899, used to travel a circuit delivering. This is how much he hated the Bible. Now, I don't know if you hate a book. Some book, you pick a book you hate. You probably have some book you'd like to get rid of or burn. But would you travel around and do this kind of crazy thing unless there was something spiritually at battle here? What I'm saying is, is this guy really, really hated the Bible and he traveled a circuit delivering messages on why the Bible is not true. He said, quote, in 15 years, I'll have the Bible in the morgue. And you realize that in 1899, he passed away. And the Bible is still the best-selling book that has ever, ever, ever been created. The Bible's preservation is God's doing. In Matthew 5.18, Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus told us, this book is not going away. Voltaire, Ingersoll, all of those guys, they've predicted that the Bible would be crushed out, that there is somehow they can make it extinct, and and they couldn't. The Bible is reliable. Have you ever had someone come up to you and say, yeah, but they changed that old book. People were meddling with it, and you just realize, yeah, I actually went through that where I thought, how... 
How could that be true? Because we've all played the telephone game. Remember where the game where you tell some, something to someone and they tell the next person, the next person, and you, at the end you're like, it's just a garbled mess, mostly because we can't hold our attention, but also because of the fact that that's just how it is. And yet God has preserved his word over all of this time. And we see this, that we have over 14,000 Old Testament manuscripts, which means pieces of Isaiah, pieces of other Old Testament books that have been put together. And when they compare these manuscripts that were written and copied over and over again and got them all back together, they compare them and they go, man, are they different now that we've played the telephone game? And the reality is, is they're not. Only a 0.5% word variation because these scribes, very job was to accurately copy the word. They, used, they actually built monasteries where they put monks, and I'm glad I wasn't one of them, and their job was to do this, to copy, copy, copy. Some of you had that experience in school. I will not chew gum. I will not <laughs> chew gum, okay? That, do that for about 40 years, okay? And so they, and the Dead Sea Scrolls, obviously in 47, they found these scrolls that had been contained and preserved, and they took them out and compared to what had been copied over and over and over again. And basically what they're saying is, is boy, those scribes are really, really, really accurate. They do not miss with what's been written, and they're very, very careful to keep those things in a reliable manner. The critics of the Bible, always, the archaeology, and I'm not going to go into it because there's just too much there, but it, it's whenever someone says, oh, the Bible's wrong about this, that later on there's a discovery that says, actually, the Bible's right on the nose. There has never been an archaeological... Uh, there was a guy named uh, Gunther who said, and he's an archaeologist, that he knows of not one archaeological finding that is in contrast to what the Bible says. Now, some things haven't been discovered yet, but over that period of time. One of them was the Hittites... Had been, they said that the Hittites never existed and that this Bible had just kind of talked about this, this, these people who never, ever even, there's no evidence of them on, on planet Earth. And yet, at the same time, they found out, they uncovered some evidence that showed that there was a 1,200-year history of the Hittites. And yet, what archaeology had said before was they never existed. The Bible is ahead much time, many times. And yet, it is not a historical book in the sense that it is not a history book that is supposed to outline this, this, and this. It is a, a book about God's history with his people and to the world. And so we're not to get into the weeds and trying to say this is a de defining book in archaeology. But when you look at the Bible, it matches up with what we know. Job 26.7 says, He spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. That was long before they thought the earth was just sitting out there. They thought they had pillars underneath it. It was supported by things. Isaiah, who wrote 750 years before the birth of Jesus, said he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And this is when, at a time when, when science believed that the world was flat, or the, the earth was flat. And obviously, God knew that long before as he created the heavens and the earth. Galatians 4.4, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the adoption to sonship. At the proper time, I was just talking to a, well, I was actually um, talking to dad, and I met mom at the water fountain, and mom is about ready to have her baby, and there is a proper time, right, to have your baby. And when, when mama gets to about nine months, you realize that there is this, this natural process by which God has, has made it so that it's time and it's, it's time right now. 
Well, there was a time in history when God had prepared ahead of time for his son to come down to earth as a human being, not as some uh, commander who is, is going to, to wreak havoc and fear with people, but he came down as a baby very softly and, and very, uh, in, a, in a way that would not scare anyone whatsoever. But this time, when the time had fully come and we just celebrated Christmas and his birthday, we realized that God's purpose was to, to send his own son, not just his word through the prophets, but his very, very son to speak to us in a way that he could have never spoke to us without him coming. And realize that the time that Jesus came was very significant. And not to go into this too far, but at this very time, God had set things in motion such that there would be a, a road system that was set up in the Roman Empire that would allow the gospel to travel like fire. That there would be a common language, Koine Greek, that, would allow, would, that was used for business to transpire across many different kind of cultures. And this, this language had been brought about in a way for business to actually be accomplished. But what it really allowed God to do in his planning was to write a book that we have in its original language in the New Testament in Koine Greek that anyone could read and who could carry on this road system to different places so that God's word could spread and to, to, could be read in many different cultures, many different places. And it was be, if, if this would have happened before this time, there would have been that limitation of not only the language and that barrier, but also the road system to get this out. But at the proper time, God allowed those things to be put in place so that the word about what happened in Jerusalem could transpire and could be transported to the whole earth. At the proper time, God did this. And the Bible talks about the fact that God did this. How accurate are the predictions? Well, not to get into the weeds, but basically, Jesus coming riding in on a foal of a donkey was, was actually predicted in Daniel. And to the very day, if you're a mathematician and you want to figure this out, Knock out the rest of the day and just figure this out. Get your calculator out. Get your little, get your little calendars out. And you realize that the very, to the very day, Daniel predicted when Jesus would ride in on the foal of a donkey. How did Daniel predict that? Holy Spirit. Somehow, Daniel was, was given the information to know when the Messiah would come. And this is the truth of God's word, is that God will tell things that no one could possibly know. No one could possibly pick a certain day that would be true. Also, every prophecy that was published at least 500 years before Christ was born, all of these were 500 years in advance. Micah 5.2 predicted that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, a very small town. That if you had to pick a town, you'd pick a large town to increase your chances of being correct, right? Bethlehem wasn't that. Isaiah 43 predicted he'd be preceded by a messenger. That was John the Baptist. Zechariah 9.9 predicted he would ride triumphantly into Jerusalem on a colt. And that's what Daniel had, had given the numbers about. Psalm, Psalm 41.9 predicted he would be betrayed by a friend. Zechariah predicted he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Psalm 22 predicted he'd be crucified 600 years before crucifixion was even invented that he would die in a tree. Strange thought at the time, but the Romans invented it, and that's how he died. Isaiah 53, 12 predicted that the Messiah would be crucified with these between them. And you realize that, wow, God is doing things in advance, telling what's going to happen long before that. Well, the chance of fulfilling eight prophecies, they did this in, 
with 600 students in several classes, and they had them actually calculate the, the likelihood, the probability of fulfilling just eight pro- prophecies. Jesus fulfilled over 300, just eight. Eight of them resulted in 10 to the 17th. So there's this many zeros behind that, meaning that it's even just to fulfill eight of them, it's improbable. I think if you fulfill 17 of them, the, the mathematicians have worked this out. If you filled our Milky Way galaxy with sand and you were to pick one piece of sand and make it red, that would be the probability of fulfilling 17 of 300 because it goes up exponentially as more and more are true. Those specific, um, probabil- or specific um, prophecies that are fulfilled. And so as you look at this book, not that it's all about prophecies, but those prophecies come true. Other books, they're always being proved, proven wrong. The prophecies don't hold up. And so you can discard the messenger. You can't do that with the Bible. But the question is this. Are you growing in your faith? I remember the, the first time that I really started reading the Bible. I was actually at 19, 20 years old. And I remember at that time just reading it. And I was just so hungry for it because I had never read and understood things before and the reason why I didn't understand things before was because God's Holy Spirit didn't reside in me at that time. I hadn't become a Christian. I had never committed my life to him. I didn't even know that there was a commitment that needed to be made. And as I had committed my life to him, as I started reading his book, I started to get things kind of into perspective and started to figure out the connections that were there as the Holy Spirit illuminated those things in, in my life. And I realized, wow, this book is completely different And not only was it completely different in what I was learning, but how it affected my life, how the fruits of the Spirit started to kind of become more clear to me, like, oh, this is how it is to be in Christ, to to abide in Him, to reside in Him, to daily have a walk with Him. And as we recognize that this book is so amazing, you have to also recognize that there is an enemy who wants to keep you from an amazing book. And that enemy will do anything to distract you from doing that. And if you've walked as a Christian for very long, you realize that. You realize that the newspaper starts looking a lot more interesting than your daily devotional. Or this activity starts to look better than that. And as we're looking into a new year, I want you to just kind of do a self-check. How am I going to spend time with my Lord through His Word And what things do I need to do in order to make sure that that happens? Because my growth is going to depend largely on my relationship with the Lord and through his word and through other people, obviously, in his word. But how is that going to happen as I look forward to to this new year? Because spending time in the word, abiding in the word, will allow us to become more Christ-like. Jesus said this when he was going away. John 14, he challenged his disciples in, in that whole upper room discourse. He kind of encompassed the whole Bible in just a, just a very short thing. He said, as I have loved you, so must you love one another. And you realize that loving one another is a fruit of the Spirit. And as we spend time with God and we spend time in his word, the fruits of the Spirit come out in us as the Holy Spirit has a chance to speak to us. We start to become, we see ourselves a little differently as a husband or a wife or a mom or a father or, or whoever. We see ourselves in a way that God sees us and he helps us to kind of connect some dots and to encourage us 
and to allow us to live out those things that God wants us to do. Every single day as we spend time in his word, it changes us. Hebrews 4.12 says this, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And if you've ever been reading along in your Bible and all of a sudden something just kind of just stabs you, you realize it's very true. God's word is living and active. It does speak to us in that way. It is something that's transformational. It transforms us. D.L. Moody said this, the Bible wasn't given for our information, although it was for that, but for our transformation. And that's what we want to do. We want to be transformed more in the likeness of Christ, that we would love like him and that we would, uh, that we would do the things that he would do, that we would relate to people in the way that he would relate to them so that we'd be a light and that we would be salt to a world that needs it so, so much. And the Bible is about redeeming what was lost. And that lost thing that was redeemed is what happened in the garden. As we are image bearers of God, God pursues us and allows us to come into relationship with him as we come through the cross to him. Here's the questions that need to be answered. Why are you here? Why are you here? Do you matter? Do you have a purpose? And this question, do you know God? And I don't mean do you go to church or do you, do you uh, maybe have you read the Bible or do you call yourself a Christian, but do you really know God? Have you delved into his word enough to know who he is, but in reality, knowing that your relationship with him has been established through his son, Jesus? Because you will read the Bible in vain without having a relationship with him. Not, not that the Bible isn't helpful, but the Holy Spirit allows us to fully understand what God has for us. He is the one who empowers us to see him. And so if you don't have a relationship with Christ, I encourage you. Boy, if there's a New Year's resolution right now, just, I would just in the quietness of your heart say this, God, I admit that I'm a sinner and that I have fallen away from you, that I, that I fail to live up to your standards, a holy and perfect God. I believe that your son, Jesus, died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that he was resurrected. And I choose to follow you the best I can, not perfectly, but I choose to follow you. And if you can in your heart pray that to God, God is waiting for you to ask him to become your father, to become the person who will guide you and empower you and allow you to see his word in a way that you have never seen it before, that you would be open to the scriptures, that your eyes would be opened in that way. And so if you've never done that, I encourage you to do that. Talk to me or Pastor Try about that, um, about that decision. Some of you know that one of my favorite books is the book of John. And there's a lot of favorite books, of course. So sometimes you go, I think I like that one better. I think I like that one better. Because there are 66 books, and they're super, super cool. And you read things, and you wow. But the book of John is so unique. And it's, it's, it's got such a unique message that's different from the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, at the conclusion of his letter, says this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. And you almost get the sense that John's hand's tired or that he's running out of ink. But he could write more if he had more time or more ink, which are not recorded in this book. But these, the ones he's recorded, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, 
and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And this is the it that every one of us who comes to God and who calls himself a Christian must get in the, is that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that by all of these things that John wrote, he wanted to convey the message that if you miss anything else, don't miss this. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the way, he is the way to the Father. And then 1 Kings 19, 11, and 12, really neat. As we look at Christmas and we realize that Jesus came in this very soft way, as a, as a baby in a manger, a very unassuming way, he came in a way that would be just completely different than if you were going to pick how a king was going to come. And in his conveyance, and it says that the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us in John. And you realize that he became flesh as a baby. And Logos, the very word of God, came to be with us to communicate to us what words probably could never communicate, which the whole book of the Old Testament was to convey that there's a Messiah coming, and the Jews missed it. But when Jesus came, then it became very real for us. 1 Kings 19, the Lord said, go out to Elijah. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. You can imagine the excitement Elijah has. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And that's how Jesus came. And I'm going to have LaDonna sing a song about this gentle coming that Jesus made and to allow us to just see how God speaks to us through his word in a gentle way, in a way that we can understand. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is transformational, that, that if we're going to change, it requires us to spend time with you and to spend time in your word. Thank you that you've given us this word that is life-transforming, that it allows us to not only know you better, but also to um, be able to share the love that you have for us with others. And just help us to understand your word and, and our relationship with you, that it would, it would deepen this year as we look to 2020 that we would set aside the time that it takes to spend the time in the word that allows it to transform us and to transform our families. And as a church, that we would be transformed, that we might be better image bearers of you, not only at work, but in our community as we go out and we are the salt and the light that you want us to be, but also that we would truly understand the, the peace and the hope that we have that is to be in the future for us as we spend eternity with you. We look forward to that. We thank you so much for this time together. We thank you so much for the season of Christmas that you sent your son, not as, not as a conqueror this time, but as a baby who would, who would be unassuming and yet at the same time would change the world and change each one of our lives individually. We thank you for him and we pray in his name. Amen.